Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And I'm so excited for the conversation that we are about to have, because this is the voice of a friend that is near and dear to my heart, and quite likely yours as well. If you're a longtime listener of the Bubble Hour, you have no doubt missed the voice of Catherine, former co-host and uh, wise, warm, and lovely, lovely friend. And if you're a new listener of the Bubble Hour, you've probably poked backwards into the archives a little bit and discovered that there was uh, a, a good chunk of time where we had a number of us hosting this show, and so that there was a number of different voices that you were hearing on any given episode. So Catherine is back. She's had a busy couple years and I've just asked her to come and tell us a little bit about what she's been up to. But we also decided that um, that it would be nice to look back a little bit and hear her story from farther back and, and revisit the arc of Catherine's story as well as catch up on things. So Catherine, my dear, dear friend, I love you so. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. I like crying, just hearing the opening music and hearing your voice and just knowing everybody is out there. I have such gratitude for you and for the Bubble Hour community um, for how you've, you've helped me um, over the years. And I just, I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. Oh, it, it feels like you're home to me. I know. <laughs> it feels like home to be together on, on this call. Um it's just, it's so nice. And it, I sometimes, I feel like this, this podcast, but also the whole recovery um, thing, like the, it's just sort of this magical force that propels people forward thing. and connects people. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I feel so grateful to be part of it and to have met, you know, friends like you that are just there is no other way life would have brought us together. We are in completely no. different countries, you know, life. There's, I cannot think of any other way that we would have connected. And yet I can't imagine my life without you. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. It's a, it's a deep soul connection. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also one of those things that picks up quickly, even after a long time without getting to talk to each other. And unfortunately, that's the case for us. We haven't got to chat for quite a while. I think it's been, gosh, it might be two years since I had you last to an update. I so, know, but thank you for reaching out now. It's divine timing. It is divine timing. So, Catherine, my dear, I'm going to throw it over to you. Tell us a little about what's been happening, but go back as far as you like. Tell us your story and, and where you're at. Yeah, thanks so much. I was sort of laughing, prepping, coming here because I, I just got home from the dentist and I felt like that was just the most sober 
action of all time, like self-care, you know, just <laughs> following through on things that, you know, maybe I would have let sort of slip or, or something um, when I was drinking. So I had uh, seven years in early April. Um, so that's, that's hard to believe, to be honest with you. Um, and I actually just recently got together um, with some of the people that I met in my first, very first days of recovery. And I just thought back like, wow, I mean, one of them had two years. And I just remember thinking like, that's impossible. And um, it's, it's just changed so much um, in that, in that period of time. So, you know, when I, when I think about going back to my, my drinking days, I mean, you know, I remember sometimes I hear people say their first drink, oh, you know, I took my first drink when I was a teenager and I immediately felt like I had discovered, you know, the secret to life. And I didn't feel that way. I, I was 16 or 17 and I got hammered at a New Year's Eve party and um, sort of threw up the whole night. And, you know, then I remember this hangover. And what's interesting to me about that moment is that you know, every other single thing in my life, if I wasn't perfect at it right away, like Olympic caliber, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. But for some reason with this, even though it obviously didn't agree with me, I was like, well, I guess I just better try harder. You know, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to drink. Like, let me, it's, it's just very strange. Um, but it really does intersect with the perfectionism on so some people who have been listening for a while will remember some of my uh, bone mow or some of my quips. Um, I'm still, I'm still using them because um, they, they still help me, but you know, a guy that I know in recovery says that the two biggest lies are I'm okay and everything's fine. And I was really, really committed to those. I was a perfectionist. I actually was probably the type of person who would say like, I did go to the dentist, so everything's fine, you know? Um, but meanwhile, you know, there I was sort of drinking all the time. Um, I mean, drinking really took off in college. There was a lot of, um, trauma in my background from, uh, childhood and um, throughout my 20s, it actually had gotten really dire. So I was self-medicating the trauma um, and also anxiety. So that that was for sure a part of it. But because I was so committed to like keeping everything, um, you know, sort of perfect on the outside. I, I always held a job and I had a career that was going pretty well. Um, I never had any legal trouble. So I, I would have told you, I was such a high achiever that I would have told you everything was fine. I, I would have told you everything was everybody else's fault, actually. And I would have said you would drink too if, um, if you had my life. And I, I was, I wouldn't have identified as being in the victim mode at the time because I was such an achiever, but, but I really was, I, I struggled with taking responsibility for, um, my part in relationships or my part in where I was just wherever I was unhappy with my life. And I, and I drank over it. Um, and I, I think a lot of things just eroded 
eroded kind of um, from this sort of real basic dishonesty um, that I think crept through a lot of things in my life. So first of all, saying I'm okay, everything's fine when that's not true. When I was suicidal, for example, um, in 2006, that's a lie. Um, saying that, you know, other people were the cause of my unhappiness. Like that's, that's not true. Or, but then even things like, well, I don't drink in the morning, so I must not have a problem. Um, somebody pointed out to me, except when you did, <laughs> you know, like who didn't love day drinking on, you know, a Sunday or something like that. Um, I'd say I always held down the job, which was true, but there were, there were a lot of times when I came in late, hung over, um, you know, or just sort of foggy and couldn't really accomplish things until, uh, you know, later in the day. And then I'd be scrambling and then I'd be wondering why I was scrambling. And that's all kind of fundamental, like fundamentally dishonest. Um, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite understand why I was trying so hard and why nothing seemed to be working out. Um, and meanwhile, I had little kept saying to me, you know, all your dreams would come true if only you stopped drinking. And I just, I feel like it's such a classic alcoholic thing to be like, Hmm, let me think about that. All my <laughs> dreams. Like, <laughs> is that really what we're talking about? Like, well, hold on. I, I've got to really weigh the, the options here, um, <laughs> you know, and I did, I did get help for the trauma stuff before I put down the drink, which, you know, who knows that was the timing, who knows if that was the right approach, but that's what happened. Um, so I did, I was in sort of intense trauma therapy for a number of years before I got, before I got sober. But what happened was, you know, I, I can remember my partner, I came home one night and was, you know, in tears because I was drinking and everything wasted. And I said, Oh, I'm an alcoholic. I got to get sober. And he said, no, you know, don't go crazy. You just have to take it easy. And what he didn't understand was that was me taking it easy. Like I, I never really tried to stop that I can remember. Although I found an old journal somewhere that had me saying like, I'm going to stop for 30 days. And I know that didn't last more than you know a day, but, um, but what would happen is I would try to control it. Like I would go out and say, okay, tonight I'm only going to have one or two. And then it would be like two o'clock in the morning and I'd be wondering how I got home with makeup running down my face and would be like passed out in bed, like with one shoe on. And you know what I mean? I, I, I did that for a long time, a lot of blackouts, um, a lot of, I believed him when I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll just try to take it easy. That went on for two more years. And what, what happened was it was like, I would, I would go out and have a couple of glasses of wine and I'd be wasted, but then maybe tomorrow night go out and have 10 drinks 
and not feel it at all. And what I didn't know at the time was that that was actually a sign of late stage alcoholism, um, which scared me when I found that out after I got sober. But kind of nothing scared me when I was drinking. And the blackouts, I had blackouts all the time. Um, and nothing, nothing scared me. So by the time two years later, it became really obvious that, you know, it was time. Um, I used to do the thing where I would Google, like, am I an alcoholic? And I would go through sort of the checklist, you know, and I would carefully pick through, and this is dishonest, right? I would pick through and say, well, okay, I can't really lie about the blackouts, but, you know, do you ever drink in the morning? No. Um, do you ever drink alone? No, except when I did, but I would lie, right? And I'd go through these, you know, checklists of questions and then get to the bottom of the list and it would say, if if you've answered even one of these questions, yes, then you could be an alcoholic. And the funny part is, is that I did that more than once, expecting a different outcome, um, which just seems, which just seems crazy now. Um, but that was sort of what led me up until, uh, you know, April 5th, 2012, which is when I, when I got sober. What happened on that day? So my partner and I were, we were in crisis. Obviously it was all his fault and I was (laughs) drinking about it. I was not going to work. I was in a rage and just drinking. Um, and then and he was saying things like, I'm, I'm sick of drinking. And I sort of secretly knew what he meant was, I'm sick of your drinking. And he kind of, I was screaming about what was happening. And he, he, he did have a role. I mean, there were things that were happening that were on both sides. And there was something that he said that kind of like he pushed back just a little bit you know, where he was like, look, I'll take my stuff, but you also have to take a look at some things. And all of a sudden I just, I heard this voice say it's time. And I sort of felt this big whoosh and was like, okay, that's it. And I actually, I had many, many years before, um, when Stephanie Wilder Taylor, who's humor blog I used to follow. I would drink and follow funny blogs. Um, she got sober. And I remember reading her blog and her, her don't get drunk Friday posts with great interest. And she and another woman started the booth free brigade. And I had marked the page and had like buried the book. It was like breaking into my computer and like snooping around at my bookmarks. Um, So I reached out and said, you know, now what? And from then on, I, you know, there's, there's that Native American saying that says, you know, all along I was being carried by a great wind. I mean, that's kind of what it's been like. Um, Other people who were able to stay sober showed me what to do. So in the beginning, I learned really basic stuff, like our big triggers are hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So if you feel like drinking, stop, halt, and think about, are you any of those things and attend to them? And it turns out I was hungry and I was tired a lot of the time, and I wasn't tending to those things. So 
at first it was real basic stuff. Then, then it was also like how to navigate the world. So, you know, how to, um, go to a wedding and not drink, how to go on vacation and not drink, um, how to, you all know, I travel a lot for work, um, how not to drink during that. And people told me what to do. Um, so that was all sort of the nuts, the nuts and bolts of it where, um, other sober people taught me what to do. But then you guys all taught me kind of how to live. And so that whole idea of I'm okay and everything's fine, that wasn't true. And sober people taught me how to actually sit with those feelings, how to deal with them, how to be honest about them, um, and how to become more and more authentically myself. And that's a process that's ongoing. Um, I feel like it's the whole process has made me much more humble um, and more open and really expansive. And the expansiveness is something that's happening all the time. And I really, truly feel like can go on into infinity. So like my life keeps expanding um, and my interests in things. And it's, so it's like, my fear that if I put down alcohol, I would be missing out on stuff. Turns out it was the other way around. I was missing out on all kinds of things. Um, and so for people who have listened to the show, you know, I'm sort of, you know, really interested in spiritual pursuits. I've done loads of that stuff um, over the last several years. Um, and then I've, found a way to really integrate my sober values um, and my sort of spiritual um, with my, my work life. Um, and so my job, I've, I have a new job. It's a global job. I unbelievably travel even more than I used to. And I know I used to talk about travel all the time and now it's like even more. Um, so for, for people who wondered, like, why doesn't Catherine participate in the bubble hour anymore? It's just a capacity issue for me. Um, I work with three sober people um, as sponsees. I go to 12-step meetings every day. Um, I do work with a sponsor. So I have a lot of places where I'm sort of plugging in um, with sober people and I just have to sort of manage my, my calendar. Um, so it's, it's been kind of cool to integrate the corporate work stuff with, with sort of the spiritual pursuits and, and my, my bigger interests. I feel, you know what, I feel like a whole person now, and I didn't feel like that before. Wow. You have an extremely demanding job, and... Um, and you maintain a you know high profile in your industry, and um, and your anonymity. You cherish your anonymity in recovery, and yet you've done so much to help others. And you managed to get to a daily meeting even still after seven years of sobriety. Yeah, believe- and you know, let me. Uh, well, and I, and I want to comment sort of on the the anonymity thing. Um, 
So there was, there was an experience where I was hosting a client saying, a work thing, and there was alcohol there. And, um, I thought was that I shared at my meeting that there was going to be alcohol. I told my sponsor about it. Um, one person attending the event was a, is a close friend, um, through work and she knows that I'm sober. And so I had said to her, Hey, if I get to feeling weird, like I need to be able to signal to you to like intervene with, you know, whatever. And I don't want to like open the wine. I don't, you know what I mean? I just, I kind of, so I had this whole plan of how I was going to deal with it. And so there I am, I'm dealing with it. And so towards the end of the event, this woman came over, I've known her for years. And she said, you know, Catherine, can I ask you why you stopped drinking? And I said, well, yeah, you know, it just wasn't working for me anymore. Why? What's up? And she said, well, um, you know, I've always noticed, I know that you don't drink. I'm very open about that, that I don't drink. And um, if people ask me why at, at work, I generally say, you know, for health or wellness and wellness or whatever. I don't know. Um, I don't really feel like I have to explain myself to be honest. Um, and, and she said that, you know, I always knew that you didn't, didn't drink and you're, you're so good at your job. And uh, I often wondered at these social things, you know, how do you, how do you um, do it without drinking? And she said, I've been in and out of trying to get sober for five years. And she said, I actually saw the serenity prayer hanging in the other room. And so she kind of, you know, she, she knew that I was in, in the 12 step program and um, she was somebody that I was more than happy to say, well, yeah. And, you know, let's, let's talk about it. Um, having said that there was somebody at another event who said, Hey, Catherine, you know, can, can I, can I talk to you about stopping drinking? I'm planning on doing it in a month after my birthday. And, you know, I, I could, I could make my own decisions about whether or not I think that person has a problem. And that's really for her to say, not me. Um, you know, is she somebody that I'm probably going to tell a whole lot to? Not necessarily. It's just not productive for me. It's not about, hiding it because I have any shame around it. It's, um, I sound, I, I feel like I, I want to sound as authentic, um, and humble as possible. So I, I prefer to stay sort of humble about it and not like, this is the whole thing of me. I, I don't know. It's, it's just more like, and I, and I also don't represent any one modality of recovery. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I only rep, I can only represent myself. I don't represent any club or team or, you know, modality there's. And so I, I don't want to be some spokesperson. That's, I guess what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. So, and it, so it goes beyond, you know, the idea of anonymity that, um, say a 12 step program encourages because, you know, they don't have a spokesperson. They don't want a spokesperson. That program encourages anonymity from that point of view, but it also encourages it to protect yourself for various reasons. But I feel like what you're talking about is being selective about 
who discerning. You, yeah, discerning about who you share private details of your life with. And one of those details happens to be your recovery. Does that does that yeah, I'm fair? actually very private. Way? Yeah, I, I'm yeah. actually a, a very private person. Um, so, however, um, when I'm able to show up in my workplace, um, I, I speak very openly about things like that. I speak from a very open hearted place. And so then I can connect to people. Um but that's different than saying, oh, you know, these are all the, you know, details of my life or whatever. So that's, mm-hmm. that's just my approach. I, I think that one thing I have found is that um, I spend a lot less time worrying what other people are or not, are not doing, how they are or are not acting or saying or feeling or whatever. Um, I, I'm doing a lot less holding in like trying to be trying to be perfect is exhausting. Gene, you and I have had that conversation. Yeah. So like I burn up a lot less energy when I'm trying to control everything. I'm, I'm burning energy, but I will say in my assistant and I were talking the other day, cause I, I've just, I've been on the road for like two straight weeks, including weekends. It's been crazy. And she, she said, you know, the only explanation I have for how you do it all is that you have, God at your back. And I was like, you know, I think you're right. Like that, that is the only explanation. Um, so can we talk a little bit about where you're at at, at seven years and, um, and two months sober, two months and one day, <laughs> something like that. Thank you for um, counting. Yes. Um, <laughs> of course yeah, I'm not airing absolutely. this for another month. So, so uh, we'll we'll add add a month to that on top of it. But let's hope, let's what, hope I'm still around. But I think it will. Yes, be. we'll assume the best. We'll assume the best. What's working for you these days, and how has that shifted at all over time? And have you added or removed anything from your recovery? Yeah. So it's been a it's been a really intense time. I've the last um, couple of years, I've had some. Um, you know, I was remembering Jean, we did, we did a show on grief and recovery a a few years ago. And, um, you know, this is why I have to connect to other sober people because you might be going through something today that I haven't experienced, but you know, time can go on and then I'm experiencing the same thing. And I might say, Oh, you know, I remember Jean did this and it helped her. So I have to pay attention how you are doing life in a sober way. Um, so I've really been carrying um, a great deal of grief. And here's what's been interesting. Um, the old kind of alcoholic ways of thinking have not changed necessarily, which doesn't mean I'm thinking about a drink. I'm not. Um, what it does mean is I can go to worst case scenario um, and start catastrophizing, I can go straight to this bad feeling is never going to end ever <laughs> um, for all time. And I wish I were dead. I, you know, I, I can still go to those extremes of thought, which sort of surprised me. I thought that, oh, once I got sober, all of that um, 
kind of extreme thinking would go away too? Not necessarily. So instead, what I'm practicing is um, so when I'm having those thoughts, reaching out to somebody and saying, you know, this is, this is what I'm feeling. So still practicing um, sitting with my feelings. Um, so that's, that's kind of a more current events thing of what's happening. I've kind of going back to that dishonesty thing and the I'm okay. Um, I believed that I had no value at some core level level. I believed I had no value. And so a big part of my practice is what I'll just call service. And service might mean working with other alcoholics, but it, it actually shows up in much bigger ways. Um, in my work life, mentoring people, um, in kind of activism that I'm involved in, you know, in my community, just sort of in my life, right? So like being of service and it's, I can affirm that I have value by taking esteemable acts. Lately, what I've been doing is linking that into this idea of connection. So my, my word of the year this year was, is connect. Um, so I've tried to get really intentional with staying connected, not just to other sober people, but like, you know, if somebody's mother is unwell, like calling and checking in, for example, or I have an elderly friend, you know, reaching out to her, that kind of thing. Um, so trying to stay connected, um, a big part of it is all my spiritual, um, my spiritual interests, which is a lot of, it's funny because I'm very kind of woo woo. Uh, and yet I have this hard charging corporate job. Um, <laughs> you know, so there are witches in our midst. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but still the the real um so I I have the three sponsees, I talk to them at a set time, each of them at a set time during the week and to my sponsor once a week. Um and and going to meetings. So because for me without that I tried to to do without that stuff for the first eight or nine months or whatever. I was really lonely, even though I had support online and some of those people that I met online are some of my best, best friends in the world and a core part of my recovery. Personally, I was lonely. I, I needed to have, and as an introvert and a kind of somebody prone to isolation and, and prone to hiding how I'm really feeling or what's really going on for me, um, I needed in-person connection so tell me more about that what tell me about your woo-woo life or whatever you're willing to share about it um what uh what do you do to feed that part of your of your personality yeah I mean it's it's gotten really really big I mean basically I talk to the angels and they talk back and I see dead people and you know so like this whole psychic intuitive thing has, has ended and opened up. So I'm actually, you know what, I, I'm working there. There's sort of this idea that any of our suffering makes us uniquely qualified to help other people. 
And because I've got lots of trauma in my background um, and sort of the principles of recovery, I find that people who have really deep, deep suffering, they somehow find their way to me. I'm not out there sort of promoting myself or talking about it. Um, People just somehow like one guy, this was funny enough. This was one guy that I worked with um, at my old company and he had a big kind of cataclysm happen in his life. And he said, you know, my first thought was I really should call Catherine. And he was like, I had no idea. Why am I calling you? And I'm like, oh, I know why. <laughs> so that's actually another area of like anonymity where I'm discerning. You know, I, I don't like run around corporate America saying like, by the way, like I see your spirit guides. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but Is it I do. distracting um, for you? Or do you, are you? Do you turn it off when you're? Yeah, no, work? I'm not open for business. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not open for business when I'm doing other things. But you know, funny, the guy had picked up on that, and I said, "All right, like, yeah." And it would be similar if he said, "I have a drinking problem, and I don't know who to talk to, and I know you don't drink. Can you help me?" Right. You know, that would be another situation where I would say, "Yeah." So I'm actually working with people, um, you know, I mean, people who had one woman had a family member who was murdered. One guy had a a three week old baby who died suddenly. I mean, like really intense, you know, suffering. And I'm able to bring heart space to that and connection to that. I would miss all of that if I were drinking or I would be at the bar and be like, well, you know, let's talk about the state of the world and suffering and just sort of blathering about it, but not really connecting on it. I'm really trying to help somebody from a place of it. Truly. It feels like it's not me. I, I feel like I'm just sort of, yeah, yeah. conduit or something. I just, it really doesn't feel like me which is great because the pressure's off. Like I can't fail if I'm just showing up and like doing sort of divine work to connect with somebody so that they don't feel alone. Does it feed you to do that? Or are there times where you're like, seriously, angels, like, no, go away. (laughs) (laughs) That calling, is it always a welcome calling? Yeah, that's always welcome. Except when they're really annoying because they always tell the truth. So like, there was, there was one year that I was supposed to get this like enormous bonus at work, but the company had certain issues. So like nobody got the bonuses that normally you would have gotten. And I was really out of joint about it. And I was sort of grumbling to myself. And all of a sudden I heard them say like, if you had gotten that money, you would have held on to the false belief that this was your only source of value and compensation and income, and that would not be true. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's, sometimes, sometimes they're really annoying because um, they tell the truth. But um, no, it's more um, where I get into my, we'll just say my ego is where I'm like, uh, I'm so busy and I have so much stuff to do, like work, 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 work. And it's more of the worldly stuff. Like, oh, no, now I have to vacuum. 
and suddenly like vacuuming is more important than than calling my mom you know like <laughs> it should be the it should be the other way around and and I can get mixed up you know where I, I still struggle too is um I sometimes I don't know the difference between asking for help and complaining because I don't like complaining particularly mm. about work so sometimes I struggle like when is that being selfish and when is that asking for help or asking for what I need and when is it complaining and when do is it do we know what you need do you, do you know what mm-hmm. to ask for that's what I really struggle with no but I think what I'm learning is if I if I call a sober person and say here's sort of the feeling that I'm having inside like usually that person can help me like, you know, pull the different threads to say, oh, okay, like what's the next right action here? What's going to kind of move out? So no, I, I agree with you. I don't always know. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, you were talking about wrestling with the belief that you have no value, mm. which is, you know, it's the vestiges of trauma because that's, Part of how we survive trauma is just by making ourselves kind of invisible and forgetting yeah. that we matter, that we're, I mean, that's, that's how it's a survival skill. And recovery mm-hmm. is really, it's not just about healing the trauma, but it's about relearning or unlearning the survival lessons we taught ourselves. Um, yeah. But you said, I loved how you put it. You said that one way that you negate that is by, um, uh, affirming your own value with esteemable acts. Mm, and mm-hmm. I feel like it could be confusing for some brackets, me, um, to find the line between doing good things that remind me of my gifts and my value and hustling for my worthiness to steal a Brene Brown mm. face, phrase. Yeah. How do you draw the line between those two things? Do you catch yourself crossing that line? Um, no, cause I, I think that, I, I think that I've learned, um, I think for me, it comes to questioning my motivations and trying to, if I'm trying to control an outcome, then I'm hustling. Mm-hmm. And usually there's some sort of boundary issue that's getting a little blurred, but if I do something with a very clear understanding of my motivation and not hoping that I get something in return, that you do something in return, that you appreciate me, that you laud me in any way. Um, then, then I'm just doing the right thing and, and, you know, honestly, I mean, sometimes esteemable acts are just things that non-alcoholics do really normally. I have to be <laughs> reminded. You, you mean know, an like the right of thing. The right thing to do is to show up for the funeral that is like inconvenient for you to go to and is really kind of painful and you kind of don't want to. Right. But you really yeah. need to show up because it's your friend whose father just died or whatever, you know. Right. Got it. Um, when you're at home, um, which I don't, how much, how much percentage of your time 
are you at home in your home? Mm-hmm. I mean, at work, like working, uh, sorry, are, are you not on the road <laughs> for work? <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you meant. Um, I, you know, I, I try to come home. I try to be home on weekends. I usually try to keep my travel sort of like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then a lot of times I'll like work from home on a Friday. So, you know, I, I try to kind of manage it that way. So when you're away, what do you do to support your recovery while you're on the road? Yeah. So I maintain that schedule with the four people that I talk to. Um, every week, um, you know, unless it's not possible, but then we're, we, we do work to like reschedule so that I, I have those connections, um, all week. Um, I, I do go to recovery meetings, um, when I travel for, for people who are, um, in the, in the 12 step universe and are interested, there is an app called meeting guide. It's, it's a, little chair in a circle is the icon. It even worked for me in Paris recently with English speaking meetings. Um, and it, so it goes by GPS and it'll tell you like where there's a meeting nearby. So if I can do that, I'll do that. Um, I have some recovery literature that I, um, that I'll read. And then I have a pretty active on um, prayer and meditation practice. So, I, I do those, um, on the road, oh, well, on the road and at home, you know, so I try, and, and I guess what I'm saying is I try to bring a lot of that stuff with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like portable mm-hmm. structure. <laughs> yeah. Portable structure. Yeah. I like it. I like it. If you look back over the seven years of your sobriety, can you characterize different phases of it looking back? Yeah, that early kind of part was definitely still in that mode of like, I'm okay and everything's fine and like clenched and very much like, I don't want to do things a different way. Like I won't drink, but I'm still going to do things my way. So it's very clenched. It was really lonely in many ways it is what it is but looking back I could have made it a lot easier on myself by connecting with people and not trying to be so controlling but as you very rightly said you know the the vestiges of trauma in particular like this is how we learned to get around in the world you know we come by them honestly and so a, hype, a hyper sense of control is a real reaction to trauma. And so, you know, I carried that around with me. So that was like a loosening up phase. And then, so then I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I did one of these things. Oh, I was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to those meetings because I don't want people telling me what to do. I mean, I really felt that way. I was like, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't, and they're, they're going to make me feel bad about myself. And now I think about it and I'm like, oh, I I made me feel bad about myself. Um, but then I was lonely, so I start going. But then I, I would sort of say to myself, like, I'll go, but I'm not going every day. <laughs> and then I, st- 
start going every day and like, well, I'll go every day, but I'm not going in the morning. And now I go in the morning every day. I mean, <laughs> so that's another thing. Um, so then, you know, I started kind of like working on that stuff. And the big, big moment was when my, my sponsor pointed out that that I was in full sort of hiding mode. I was, um, I was not letting people in. I wasn't telling people when things were wrong. I was just, I was, I was trying to figure everything out. That's exhausting. I, I was just trying to like figure it out. And I was very capable in all these other areas of my life. So I didn't really understand so she had given me the dictum that, you know, I had to start sharing with people what was really happening inside of me, what was, what was really going on when I was angry, say that I'm angry, you know, that kind of thing. And um, that shattered me for many weeks. I was like, don't you know what kind of background I come from? That is not safe for me to do. I am not doing that. And um, so that was a that was another big kind of watershed. Um, and then the other one was probably being faced with loss, um, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago, and uh, really realizing that I had to um, I had to take that even further you know, take my vulnerability even further and connect with people even more. Um, and when you were saying, Jean, like, you know, how do you know if you're hustling for your value? Um, the reason I mentioned the seemable acts or just taking action at all is because you could tell me to your blue in the face, you have, you have value. And I might not hear it. Or intellectually, I hear it, but it doesn't really land. It's not until I start actually doing things. Like for me, I had to get up and leave the house and go sit down with other sober people face to face to get vulnerable and to not be lonely. Like I had to be face to face with people. Um, I have to actually be talking about it. And I can't just be like, all right, I, I, I think I'm a good person. Like, how am I showing up in the world? What am I doing in the world? You know, it's, it's more than just saying it or listening to somebody talk about it or reading it in a book. I'm, I can be real brainy and like be in my books, you know, and I, I actually have to be doing stuff. That's kind of been the big thing. Those are big thing with that grief. Yeah. Yeah. In the last like year and a half. So those, those are kind of my big phases. I'm, I'm only seven years in. I now I sort of feel like that's not that far, you know, like in the beginning, like 10 days possible. And now I like, the more, oh, the more I feel like the less I know. And I just want to keep learning. Hey, you know, it's funny how that is because mm. those two weeks was impossible to me. I mean, I couldn't get two days mm -hmm. and then, mm-hmm. When I started getting those, that time, yeah, you're right. Like, you you realize yeah. that um, you're never done, and you and you don't want to be, because you want to always grow. You always want to learn more about yourself, and and continue that like, um, 
going deeper within yourself and then bringing out more of your best characteristics and growing more. So yeah, that's the weird thing about, you know, when, when someone says I'm on day three, I'm on day five, I'm on day 21. I am so happy for them because that is, to me, it is as big an accomplishment as having a number of years because it's so hard to get through those first few days. And then the years start to, absolutely they start to fly. And then the lessons are almost like they're further and farther between, but they're, oh my gosh, they're huge. Like you say, they're like those big things like grief or mm. um, even how to accept good things in your life and feel like yeah. you are, I'm going to say like, and give up trying to feel like you are worthy of them and just feel like I can enjoy this. I don't have to score how worthy I am or not worthy of it. Or, yeah, you know, just, this is just my life right now. I can just ride this happy phase and be fully in it. Um, it's like they're, they're big lessons. Yeah. They're huge. And, you know, I mean, just that whole, like, am I, am I worthy or whatever? Like, that's just a lot of trying to control the world. Like, what if I just assume that I'm worthy and like start there <laughs> and then start engaging with people. And so then it makes me a lot more resilient and sort of less, I just, I'm less reactive now. If yeah. people are crazy, I'm like, well, that's not my problem, you know? And I don't, I don't have to get involved in like somebody else being crazy. You know, even if you, somebody wants to give me a hard time about something, like, okay, you know, not, knock yourself out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just get a lot less, I'm a lot less outraged by the world. I was so outraged all the time. Can you believe that somebody's not acting this way? I was always, like, outraged. And now I'm like, oh, because that's how they're acting. That's why I'm, okay. But I'm, yeah. but it gives, I have good boundaries. And, and I assume, I assume my value and I actually assume everybody else's, but I'm not trying to control everybody else. Man, it's a big relief. I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, just, it's like you assume that we're all worthy. We can stop trying to be good Mm -hmm. enough when we just sort of assume that everyone has an intrinsic value by it's our birthright. We wouldn't be here. We weren't. And then, yes. Like that belief, it just sort of naturally follows when you stop buying into this scorecard of yourself and others. And then it's just a much nicer way to live. It's just, it's more honest, really. Like, because it doesn't really make sense to me that like, I mean, if you're walking around on this planet, you have value. And that's it. And it, I, I actually, I struggled for quite some time with the idea of like, you know, is alcoholism a disease? Like in, in early days, I just didn't know. I, I thought it was still like, I should be able to control it or not control it or be a good person and control it or not a good person and not control it, that kind of thing. But what I then realized was like, wait, but I am a good person and all these other people that I know that are good people are alcoholics. But these other good people over here, when they drink, nothing happens to them. But for, for me and my, my alcoholic friends, something different happens for us. 
like, oh, wait, that that's sort of the definition of like an allergy, if you will, or, or something like that. Yeah, it's just, it's not like, oh, I'm alcoholic and so I was bad. I just want to say that because I, I think that I, I felt, I felt that, mm-hmm. that I was, that I was bad because I couldn't control it. And then also I would do like crazy boundaryless things when I was drinking. I've got to say, I really developed this new belief around that, this, this like self-shaming because we couldn't control it, you know, like we're abnormal yeah. somehow. Okay, alcohol's addictive. So the only, like getting addicted to it is the normal thing to expect. And anyone who's able to use it without getting addicted, they're the abnormal ones. Yeah, it's just, and also like, by the way, like trauma, while there is correlation, as I understand the science behind it, there's, there's like a high correlation between trauma and people who are addicted. It's not necessarily the case. One of the people who really helped me was this guy who was like, yeah, you know, I had this amazing childhood, this really loving family. Everybody was great. And he, he was telling the truth, you know, like, um, and yet here he was. And so it wasn't just like, I I couldn't just say, oh, because these bad things had happened or whatever, or these challenges had happened for me. Um, That was why either. That wasn't Mm -hmm. the case either. Mm -hmm. It didn't follow because not everybody has that. So, yeah, you you said it right on, Dean, of like, we should expect people to get addicted to it because it's addictive. (laughs) (laughs) Like. Like we don't, if if a person starts smoking, what do we say to them? Oh, just smoke moderately. We're like, don't smoke. You'll get addicted. Like, why would you start that? That's addictive. and bad for you. So I really think we need to think about drinking the same way. What is your drink of choice at um, a a networking event? Uh, Club soda with a lime. Very good. Uh, what's your go-to reading material? I am a for recovery or for life. Uh, answer one and then the other. Oh, um, yeah. So for recovery, I do a lot with the um, with the twelve-step literature, um, but also I really like um, recovery memoirs. Um, but. In life, I like a lot of um, fiction and this kind of spiritual reading. Awesome. Uh, personal theme song. <laughs> if you well, want to, if you, I, I do. I do. I well, it's um, and this is my recovery theme song that I I play every year on April fifth. Is um, I made it through the rain by Barry Manilow. Ah, that's so cheesy. Everybody go play it. It's so cheesy. I mean, but I am like, I am, I am completely a cheese ball. So this is like me owning it. Do you sing it at the top of your lungs? Do you do like a show tunes? Yeah. Now everybody, after you listen to this program, go put it on and like get in the shower or something and sing it loud. You're going to be glad you did. Yeah, I can, I, the lyrics are burned into my brain from the 1970s. 
when I had the radio on all the time as a kid. I mean, you're right. That's a great song. What's your comfort treat for yourself after a bad day? Great, like taking a shower and putting on great jammies and like crawling into bed. Um, If you mean a treat of like, what do I like to eat treat? um, I like popcorn and M&Ms together. (gasps) That sounds so good. Peanut or regular? epic. Regular. Oh, I be my guest if you're a peanut fan. Yeah, it's epic. (laughs) Salty and sweet. And uh, Craving Buster, do you have a uh, something that you recommend, um, you know, to negate cravings or that worked really well for you to have when you were craving alcohol? And the do you still first have cravings? time I had, I, I don't, I have to say I don't. Um, I do have nicotine cravings. So speaking of which, that's that's much harder from a craving standpoint. And and But I do sometimes still have drunk dreams. Um, so that can still happen, but I don't, I don't crave drinking. Um, however, I remember in probably maybe my first week or two and I, it was coming on five o'clock and I was like, oh my gosh, I really am craving a drink. And somebody said two things. They said, I was at the office, get up and walk around Mm -hmm. and go get something to eat. So what I did was I went to the office kitchen and they had saltines or something and I just grabbed whatever and I pretended I was going to the printer (laughs) and I did sort of a lap around the office and it was, who knows, a minute, two minutes, I don't know. It was a miracle. Mm. I sat back down and I said, oh, I don't have this craving anymore. Hungry is major. For me, I really have to be, if I start getting real crabby, annoyed, at, especially annoyed at other people, um, I have to stop myself real fast. Because that's the stuff I used to drink over, you know? I, don't, I just don't want to get close to that. So, mm-hmm. frankly, I just, I just eat whatever I can get my mitts on and, like, shove it down my gullet fast. Just so <laughs> that's that's good advice you know, because that yeah, we, I did an episode recently on nutrition for recovery, and uh, Chris, the the expert I interviewed, said that many people with alcoholism are um, uh, hypoglycemic, and that uh, a hypoglycemic reaction is easily mistaken for an alcohol craving and that what you really need is, point. you know, something to eat. That's and, a great, um, great point. Yeah, I, I can believe that. Um, now, I don't really personally have a, a thing with sugar, although I will say my first years of recovery, I, um, I, I walked around with a of candy around my neck <laughs> and my face in it. And I just didn't care. I was like, I, I just... I, I was like, I'm eating the M&M's, that's what's happening. Now, I'm just sort of, because I travel a lot, for example, I'm real thoughtful about always having like a granola bar or some, you know, almonds or something. I just, the shortest flight doesn't matter. I always have a snack with me because you never know. Yeah, but because I'm sort of more thoughtful about the timing of it, then I don't really eat junk food. Before you go, um, do you have any closing thoughts or words of encouragement for our listeners to, as as your parting words? Yeah, I mean, so the first thing is just really 
really deep gratitude to you, Dean, and to everybody listening because I just I really feel the power in community of all of all of us doing this together today. You know, that's amazing. Um, and making use of gratitude every day in a in a list or in a conversation is um, helps me affirm it. And I, I would just say that, like, I feel like if I can do it, then, then anybody can. And um, connection is the key. Just find your people who can share how they do it and lean into them. Um, no one has to figure it out is has never worked for me. So like, I don't have to figure it out alone. Um, and neither does anybody else. So keep going. Oh, thank you so much. Listeners, if you would like to send a message to Catherine to say hello, to thank her for coming back and saying, saying hi, or to express any feedback on, on our conversation today, send them to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will make sure that Catherine gets your messages. That's everything we have for today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me and when I face a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power, weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see I Not proud that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power I'm proud.